0: Well, good morning. Uh, let's just get the awkwardness out right out of the way. Like I don't know what's more awkward—the fact that you're watching me on a camera, or I'm speaking into a camera. So just get rid of that right now. And I, I love and miss the human interaction, and not that these few humans around me aren't helpful, but I miss my brothers and sisters on a Sunday morning. And we want you guys to know that we're doing something different this morning in this live stream. And even within the way that we structure the sermon, because this is not ideal and this is not a long-term solution. But if the church cannot gather in person, we will gather in spirit. And so this morning, we're going to address some real questions. Like with all this social distancing, do we really have to brush our teeth if no one's going to be within six feet of us? I thought thought that this morning. I might might as well go ahead and brush my teeth anyway. Uh, And I received a lot of encouragement from the body. My favorite yesterday was... Praying that your sermon doesn't look like a Bin Laden capture video. So just as long as we can get above that, we'll be great. You know, while life is coming to a halt and we're living like we're in a nuclear fallout and no one knows whether we're supposed to leave the house or not, what should happen to us during this time? It should give us more time to pray. It should drive us to prayer and not just drive us to more Netflix. Um... But when we think about prayer, do we think about prayer? Do we think about what prayer is? Do we think how we can pray? Why we can pray? Who do we pray to before what we're praying for? And that's what the psalmist is going to get at this morning. I think Psalm 86 is perfect for our times of trouble and uncertainty. And there's much to teach us in this psalm. Because oftentimes we go straight to what we need and what we're getting out of it. Instead of just marveling in the fact that we get to go before a faithful and great God. And not just focusing on what we get out of our prayer. But the fact that God created all things listens to our prayers. And will respond to them and cares for our prayers. So what I want to do first before we get into Psalm 86. And if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you. Go through your Bibles. You're going to need them this morning as you always need them. But the structure of this psalm and the repetition of this psalm helps us understand the meaning of the psalm. And so if you want to know what it's like to pray like David, a man after God's own heart, I think this psalm gives us some insight. First, one of the things we're going to see, there are three main stanzas. And in each of the stanzas, the steadfast love of God is mentioned. The Hebrew word has said, which we've dealt with before and we'll get into a little bit later. It's. So much more than steadfast love. It is covenant loyalty and faithfulness from a God to his people. And is unique among other words that, that, that speak of love. It is a particular love to a particular people. Within that, David will use the name of Yahweh, God's covenant proper name, four times here. And each of them is in a particular request for something. So we're... David is approaching the God of steadfast love, the God of Hesed, Yahweh, the God of Israel. The request comes from a humble servant, which he repeats three times. David's posture is one of a lowly and humble servant. And he calls on Adonai, Lord, seven times. Adonai is the name for Lord or Master. So there's a relationship going on here between servant and master. Between a man and his God, a servant and his and his master, David deals in both realms here. And throughout the psalm, we're going to see David's appeal to a compassionate God for grace, for favor, for mercy, for man who's in a time of trouble. So that's the repetition we're going to see. But the structure is beautiful. And this will be up on your screens. Hopefully you can see this at home. But this psalm is a beautiful chiasm. And if you're not familiar with what a chiasm is, it's a structure of parallel lines. So you'll see at the beginning and the end, there's a request for God to save his servant. Right after that, the next line in, God abounds in steadfast love. We see in verse 15 and in verse 5, there's the repetition of the day of of trouble that separates each one of those. And then there is glory to the name of the Lord from the nations and from David. But the epicenter, the middle of this entire psalm is verse 11, where David requests from the Lord that he teach him, that he might walk in his ways, that he unites his heart to fear his name. That is the focus of this psalm. Everything else leaves David to that. How can I walk in your ways? How can I walk in your truth? How can I fear you with my whole heart? Hopefully, by David faithfully being asked to be taught, that he can teach us how to pray, and to, so that we know how hard heart, our hearts should be in a time of trouble. And hopefully, by the end of this, we'll know what the Lord is teaching us through this. So if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 86. I'm going to read through the entire text, and then we will go through it together. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. That I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor. That those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you that you... Our God who answers the prayers of his people. You are a God who is above all things yet condescends to us. Help us with David learn to have a rightful heart before you. Help us to humble ourselves before you and see your greatness and know that it is because of your grace and your mercy and your love toward us that we can even approach you. So that when we do approach you, we ask as we ought We ask in a way that honors and glorifies you. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we glorify your name and we look forward to the day when every tongue and every tribe and every nation will surround your throne and shout. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty, who was and is and is to come, who belongs all glory and dominion and power forever and ever. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So what we're going to do in this psalm this morning is something I've always wanted to do, and so I'm going to use this virus craziness to get an opportunity to do this. So there are three stanzas in this psalm, and because we don't have an outline this morning, you can write these down. One through seven, we're going to deal with the grounds, meaning how can we approach God? And how does David approach God? And how that helps us understand what our posture in prayer should be. And so what we'll do after that is we will get to respond in song to this idea of a faithful God and the grounds of prayer itself. Second stanza, the greatness of God, verse 8 through 13, who he approaches. We rightly must understand who God is before we can ask anything of him. And so in this, we will also take a time to reflect in prayer and respond in song. And then our last section, the graciousness of God, verses 14 through 17, now he gets to the purpose of his approach. He knows who God is. He has the right the right standing before him, the right posture. And now he can ask for his request. So this is David's pattern of prayer. and I think it's very insightful for us. So let's pick up section one. One through seven. We're dealing with a poor and needy man calling upon a gracious and loving God. A poor and needy man calling upon a gracious and loving God. Before we start reading this, I want you to have a couple thoughts in mind. Are you ever in awe that you can approach an almighty God? Are you ever in awe that you can approach an almighty God? Do you ever think about how amazing it is? And also, what makes that possible? How is it that we can approach an almighty God? Because I think if we thought about these things more often, we would go to God first and we would go to God more often instead of making up our minds and going to him in prayer assuming that he thinks the way we do. Because where David starts is where we must start. Verse one. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Four. You'll see four repeated often here. This gives us the purpose. This is a psalm with purpose. David doesn't just tell us what he does and what he asks, but he tells us why. Every time you see four, you're going to see why. Why does David say what he's saying? He's calling out to God. He's asking God to hear, for I am poor and needy. It's where we must start. Jesus told us he begins the beatitude. Beatitudes with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You must first be poor in spirit, recognizing your own spiritual poverty, recognizing your own neediness. You cannot approach him in arrogance. This is where we must start. We must start with a humble heart and recognize our lowly nature before the Lord. The arrogant have no need for the Lord. The arrogant don't want the Lord's help. We must first be poor and needy. So as we think about this, how many people approach God as if he is obligated to respond to us? God should be happy that I'm even taking my time out of my day to talk to him. He should give me whatever I want. How often do we approach God as the poor and needy or as the arrogant who think God is obligated to respond to our prayers? We must know first that we are weak and lowly. That is the posture of how we approach God. And this continues in verse 2. Preserve my life for I am godly. David can approach because he's godly. This word godly in the Hebrew it means the one who is devoted to who is faithful to the living God. This is not just some outside superfluous quality. This is someone who is truly devoted to the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the living God. David can approach because he's godly. David is weak and he's poor, but he is also confident in who his God is. Preserve my life for I am godly. Save your servant. He recognizes if you are lowly, if you are poor, if you are broken, you recognize you need a savior. The arrogant do not need saving. Those confident in themselves do not need a savior. Now they need a savior, but in their minds they don't. David knows he he needs to be saved. Save your servant. The humility continues. He doesn't say save your king, he doesn't say save your anointed one, save your servant. This dimension of servant-master is fleshed out here. He knows his proper perspective before the Lord of hosts. And there is this understood servant-master relationship. And you cannot pray without this relationship. There is only one Lord in the relationship. If you do not submit to him, if you do not bow down before him and serve him as his servant, there is no communication, there is no prayer. And throughout the psalm, David is going to give a picture of the master that he serves. And if you indeed bow your knee before the Lord of all creation, you will see the master that you serve as well. He's not just a master, but he is a God, my God, for I am godly, savior, servant who trusts in you. You are my God. David understands the relationship, servant, master, man, God, and walks both of them perfectly. And he appeals toward the love of his God and the mercy of his God. As John tells us, we love because he first loved us. And so in this, David understands that you can only be my God because you have loved me. There is nothing in me that would want you in and of myself. I am completely humbled before you. And that continues in the brokenness in verse three. Be graciousness to me. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for you see it again, for I am poor and needy, for I am godly, for to you I cry all the day long. Where else would I go? What else can I say? Be gracious to me. Even in his brokenness and helplessness, there is no life, no hope in himself. The humble tone continues, but there is complete confidence in his God. He knows where to go for grace. He knows where the source of grace is. He cries out to the source of grace and the source of gladness. Verse four, glad in the spirit of your servant for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Why can he cry out? Why does he cry out? I know where grace comes from. I know where gladness comes from. Right now, I'm not glad. I need your gladness, O Lord. Glad in the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Soul in the Hebrew nefesh is life. Everything that you are, everything that is encompassed in who God has made, I lift all that up to you, God. I give it all to you. Glad in my soul. This is a beautiful request. And the term glad has lost its weight in our culture. Because uh, there are so many other adjectives we use. But glad is meant to delight, to be joyous. With an uncontrollable outward expression. Gladden my soul so that what is in me comes out. And everyone sees how glad I am. Because of you. Because my soul is lifted up to you. I just want to encourage this. Especially in these times. Especially when the world acts like there is no hope. People have so many questions. We should be a people whose souls are lifted up to the Lord. Who are gladdened by the Lord. So that everyone who sees us sees the joy that is within us, sees the delight within us, because the Lord has lifted our souls. He has lifted our spirits and we are a people of joyful expression. And that will be a witness to the world that is so unlike how they respond. Now we get purpose of this whole thing again in verse five for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving For you, the purpose here, how can I come before you? How can I seek graciousness and gladness from you? For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. How can a poor, needy, sobbing person feel glad? How is that possible? Because my God is good. My Lord is forgiving. For you, O Lord. He can confidently pray because he knows the character of his God. He knows that his master is merciful. But just as important, he knows the relationship. I am not calling on you as an outsider. I am not calling on you as someone who is unknown to you. I'm calling on someone who has a relationship with you. I'm calling on someone who knows that your steadfast love is set on me. This is the basis for the grounds. How can he approach in prayer? How can he know? Because he knows God. He knows him intimately. He knows he's good. He knows that he's forgiving. He knows he's abounding in steadfast love. This language is so rich. It's not generic love or romantic feelings. This is vast covenant faithfulness. From generation to generation to the ends of the earth, those who he sets his love on, he will be faithful to. And because Yahweh sets his love on you, now you can call on him. There is no calling on him. He does not answer back unless you are in covenant with him. Prayer is never possible. Without a mediator, there must be someone to come between. He can call on the God of steadfast love because he has seen it. How much more so have we seen it? How much more so do we have a mediator, a high priest who lives to intercede for us? And there is no mediation without the shedding of blood. The separation is covered with blood in the garden. And to be atoned for with set the sacrifice of Abel. And to be atoned for by the sacrifices of the priests. Now have been atoned for by the son. Who becomes the mediator, who becomes the high priest. And so now prayer begins this Trinitarian direction. That the steadfast love of God, we see that his son would lay down his life and then intercede for us. And the covenant in his blood now assures that we can communicate with God and come before him. And because of the son, many more sons who've been brought into glory can go before a good and forgiving father. And so this prayer should mean so much more for us. When we say God is good, we contrast it with our wickedness. And our neediness. We say God is forgiving. We contrast it with our sin. We see that the God who would send his son for us. To lay down his life for us. Encourages us. Implores us to come before him in prayer because of his steadfast love. David saw a glimpse of this before Christ. And we see it in its fullness. And this should be a beautiful encouragement to us. And so this is why the psalmist can respond in confidence in verse six and seven. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of of my trouble, I call upon you for you answer me. There's no uncertainty here. He knows the nature of his God. He knows that his God listens. The day of trouble is the occasion. But this is the first time we hear about it. And he doesn't dwell on it. That's an important lesson for us. Because it's so easy for us to dwell on our troubles before God. It's so easy for us to get stuck in everything that's going on around us instead of who we get to go before. Yes, he mentions it's a day of trouble. But his confidence is in the one who gives grace, who gives gladness, who answers. And he knows the steadfast love of the Lord to his godly servants. So as I said, I'm going to give you a moment here. And so to think about the faithfulness of God, God, steadfast love, he said he would never leave, never forsake those who he draws to himself and seals with his spirit. He is faithful to and he answers. He is our source of grace and our source of gladness. I'll give you a few moments to reflect on that and I will pray for us and then we will respond in song and pick back up in the second stanza. Oh, Lord, hear our prayer. We are poor and needy. We give our lives to you. We trust in you. We serve you, our master. You are God of great faithfulness. A God of abounding, steadfast love toward his people. A God who is good and forgiving. We praise you for that, Lord. That even in our day of trouble, you are gracious, you sustain us, you provide for us. You will never leave us, never forsake us. If indeed we call out to you in faith, Lord, convict us if we are arrogant before you. Humble us if we are ever trusting in our own strength. Forgive us when we do not come to you first. Lord, I pray that you be with your people, separated, scattered this morning. And remind us that we are united to you through your Son by the power of your Spirit. And in that, we are united to one another, that you may receive all the praise and all the glory. Great is your faithfulness.
1: Sing with us. Great is thy faith.
0: Our second stanza and focus on praise for the great and true God, full of glory, truth, and mercy. David transitions from the faithfulness of God to the to the to who God is, who he is and what he has done. Praise for the great and true God, full of glory, truth, and mercy. Do you thank God in your prayers? Do you spend time glorifying God for who he is as part of your prayers? If you don't, you should. Do you spend time meditating on his nature and his glory the way David does? FYI, in case you were wondering, declaring to God his uniqueness and his greatness is not for his sake. I think he knows. It's for our sake. We need to be reminded because we are so quick to forget we are so consumed with our own world that we forget how great our God is. There are no gods like him. And that our prayers should be saturated with what we know about him. And we are selling our prayers short and our God short. If, our, if the end of our prayers are just what we need and the benefits we can get from it. We can only pray confidently because of who God is and what he has done. That's why we need to be reminded of that quite often. So what we're going to see in this section is we're going to see God on a grand scale in 8 through 10. God's transcendence over all things. And on a personal level, verse 11 through 13, how God is imminent among his people. And how he communes with David. So let's run through these kind of quickly, not as long as the last section. Verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like you. Incomparable. There is none like you. There is no equal. There are many gods. There are many false gods with many false promises, but none compared to you. No one is like you. There's no one even in the same category. No one who is able to share your billing. You are incomparable. There is none like you. You see here his nature, none like you, and his works, his person and his works, nor are there any works like yours. No one is like you. No one does anything like you. Some people say all gods are the same and all religions are the same. That is lies from hell. That is blasphemy to the true and living God. There is no God like him. He is the God of all things. It's the God who created all peoples. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. This is global worship. This is not universal worship. There's a difference. It does not say that every person everywhere will worship in the same way. But every tongue, tribe, nation, every people will worship. I love how Psalm 4610 says this. If you can turn there. Uh, You can get there quickly, otherwise it'll be up on the screen. Psalm 46.10, the verse that we quote very often. Be still and know that I am God. It is perfect in our time. When everyone wants to scatter, and what do I do? How do I solve this? Where are all the answers? Be still and know that I am God. But it is in the context of all the nations worshiping him. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. It is in the context of worship. This is a God who is God over all things. This is God over your circumstances. You can be still and know because all the nations cower before him. And the worship of our God does not stop with Israel. He's not just the God of Israel. And God has revealed himself to us and that worship we now have perfected in Christ. Philippians 2, the great Christ hymn of Paul. Philippians 2, I love the language here. 10 through 11. Starting in verse 9, we pick up. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what David is saying. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, shall glorify your name, the name of Jesus. David had never met Jesus in the flesh, but he knew him. He called on us to pray to him. Again, the reiteration of the person in work in verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. You are great and you do wondrous deeds. Who you are and what you do. Your person and your work. There is none like you. You alone are God. Get the picture? No room for anyone else here. This is God's transcendence. There's no one like him in all the world as we talked about in our chiastic structure, we're moving from the praise of the nations into the centerpiece of this whole psalm. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. This is David's desire for faithful living. You want to examine the heart of a man who is after God's own heart? I want to examine the the four aspects of this verse, which is really helpful because everything is pushing toward the center of this psalm. What does it require of the one who's requiring of God? Number one, learning. Be teachable. Teach me your way, O Lord. We must constantly be students. Always growing, always sanctified. Teach me your way. Not some ways I want that I want to try to plug you into. I'm going to submit to your word. I'm going to submit to your authority, to your way. I will submit myself to you. I will be teachable to you. And I will submit myself and I will learn so that I may walk. What I think and how I live are inextricably linked and they cannot be separated. Learning, be teachable. Walking as you live, day in and day out, as you go according to the truth. That I may walk in your truth. I may walk in the narrow way. Blessed is the way. The one who follows after the way, the truth, and the light. I'm going to walk according to the truth of your word. What I am learning, I am applying to my hands and feet. It does not just stay in my head. I don't just learn for learning's sake. I learn so that I may be faithful in the way that I walk, in the way that I follow you. That's the first half of this. So you've got knowledge and you've got actions, and now we're dealing with the heart. We've got the All encompassing faculties of man are understanding our actions and our affections. Unite my heart to fear your name. There's this uniting quality. What is he saying here? He's saying, I cannot rightly fear your name. I cannot rightly come before you in awe if my heart is divided cannot serve two masters unite my heart that I may love you with my 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 entire mind my entire soul my entire being all my strength my heart everything that I am give me an undivided heart that I might love you and fear you with all of it because when my heart is united to you then I can fear your name learning walking uniting fearing this is not a fear that is scared this is a fear that is reverent, that holds God in the proper high place of honor that he deserves. This is David's whole purpose in this song. God, in this trouble, teach me. Teach me to be obedient. Teach me to walk. Teach me to have a heart that is fully devoted to you. Teach me to revere you even when your enemies revile you. And what is the response when David's heart is united? If David is learning the truth of God, and he is walking in obedience, and he has a united heart that fears his name, verse 12, I will give thanks to you, O God. If I am learning, walking, united in my heart and fearing, how can I not praise you? If you're having a hard time praising the Lord in this situation or any other situation, look to the previous four steps. Are you learning? Are you walking? Is your heart united and are you fearing him? If you're having a hard time praising him, it's probably because you're not faithful in one of those. We must have a whole heart that fears him so that we can glorify him. I will give thanks to you, oh my God, my Lord, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. David knows that nothing can separate him from the steadfast love of his God. No one can snatch him out of my hand. No one can stop me from glorifying you because of what you have done, because of how great you are. Love the Lord your God. Love your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength because of his steadfast love for you. Four. He gets it here. For great is your steadfast love toward me. Here's the why. Why? How can I learn? How can I walk? How can I glorify? How can I praise? Because your steadfast love is toward me. Now we get the imminent God who comes down and condescends and talks to his servant and sets his love on him. Great is your love toward me. This is why I thank and glorify you. Notice that the steadfast love is for the godly. Those that he delivers from the depths. Those he sets his love on. It's not for the wicked. It's not for those outside of this covenant relationship. There is a specific relationship. It is very personal. And I love how David prays here. For great is your steadfast love for me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Sheol, the, the dark reaches of the earth, the realm of the dead. But this is past tense. This is completed. I'm in the day of trouble, but I'm focusing on you have saved me from eternal death. You have saved me from separation from you, and that is what I am most grateful for. That is how I know your love, that you have saved my soul. David prays confidently in his deliverance. How much more for us? We have the gospel. We have the good news that a righteous God saves wicked sinners. Not just Sheol, the depths of death, but the fiery punishment of hell is placed on the son that we might be delivered. The steadfast love of the father who sent the son for us. This is a beautiful glimpse in Psalm 86 into the fullness of the gospel that we have. And even the gospel that we have is a beautiful glimpse of the glory of God and his steadfast love for his people that we will enjoy forever because of what Christ has done for us. So give you a moment to reflect on the greatness of God among the nations and to you. And then we will pray and respond in song. God, there is none like you. There is no one with great works like you. All the nations shall praise you because you deserve it. All the nations will bow before you because we have no choice. And yet, you show your steadfast love to your people. How great you are, God. Yet how kind and compassionate you are. That those of us you've redeemed, we deserve Sheol. We deserve the land of the dead. We deserve to be blotted out of the book. But you teach us. You discipline us. You train us to walk. Lord, please work in our hearts. Please help us to obey your truth, to walk in your way, to unite our heart wholly, to fear you above all gods, to praise you, to glorify you in every circumstance because you are our God. Your steadfast love has delivered us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for justification. Thank you for sanctification. And we await our glorification because you are the God who saves from beginning to end, saves to the utmost, and saves completely your own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. final stanza we have the burdened servant who appeals to the gracious master and because of the steadfast love of his lord because of the greatness of his god then and only then can he call upon his grace then can he ask, lord i know who i am i know my standing before you i know you are faithful i know you are great and i am meek and lowly David says all that he said up to this point so that he can have the proper perspective when he petitions. God, I want to make sure that my heart is right and my mind is right before you. He rightly knows his status before his God. He rightly knows the nature of his God. Now it is natural to call on God for salvation. Picking up in verse 14. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life and they do not set you before them. If you read the Psalms and you know the life of David, this could be many times in his life. He's always has people chasing after him and people who want to kill him. And what does he do? I guarantee you, you do not have as many people trying to kill you as David had tried to kill you, more than the hairs on his head. But even in then, What does he do? He goes to God first and he goes to God rightly in those circumstances. David is no stranger to these insolent, ruthless men who do not consider Yahweh in their thoughts. They do not set you before them. Like I said, I pretty much guarantee that you're not in David's situation. But the principle still applies. Because if you are a convicted and vocal and confident follower of Christ you will be a target for those who, have, who do not set Yahweh before them. And if you have not been ridiculed or criticized for your faith, people probably don't know that you're a Christian. If they do, they would criticize you. This is what Paul tells us in the book of 2 Timothy. I think this ties together everything that we've been dealing with this morning. David's heart and Paul's heart to Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, pick him in verse 10. You, however, speaking to Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. This is like the psalmist who seeks to follow God in everything that he does to be teachable, his walk throughout his life, his own obedience. And he goes on, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured... Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to be the godly like David, if you want to cry out to him in your need and in your, and in your poverty, know that you will be persecuted. It is a guarantee. And the wicked that David is dealing with, Paul is still dealing with, and we are still dealing with. While evil people and imposters will go on from being bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. Teach me, O God. And having firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How can we understand our salvation? How can we cry out to God the scriptures? The sacred writings in this passage, most of us know all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness. What is the context of this passage? Faithful living that brings about persecution. It is the word that teaches us and trains us and reminds us in that time. How can David ever attempt to follow a holy God? He meditates on his word day and night. This training, this teaching, this reproof, this correction is for the man of God, the godly man, that he may be equipped, excuse me, complete and equipped for every good work. God's word ministers to his people at all times, especially in the midst of affliction. And So if you are sick right now, if you are afflicted, if you are burdened with your situation, Go to God's word. Taste and see that he is good. Be like David. Be a man after His, after God's own heart who meditates on God's word day and night. And then you can respond the way David does. Look at the way David responds in verse 15. I love this. The wicked people of verse 14, the insolent, disobedient, disrespectful people are against me. Verse 15, but you, oh Lord. I love that. I'm not worried about them. I look to you. They can do whatever craziness they want. But you, oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Are you able to do that? Can you turn from fixating on your present circumstances, however difficult they may be? And I don't mean to minimize them. But can you say whatever is going on in my life, but you, oh Lord, you are gracious. You are merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to those who call on you. Can you do that? I won't worry about my struggles. I will focus on you. Let's look at what David focuses on. People want to kill him. But what is on his mind? My God is merciful and gracious. The whole idea of grace and mercy is that you don't deserve it. If you were righteous and everything was going well, you would need mercy. If you were righteous, you would need grace. Thank you for giving me what I don't deserve. Thank you for being faithful when I have not been. Thank you. That you are God of mercy toward his people. Thank you that you are slow to anger. Thank you for your patience toward me. Because I have been the insolent and the disobedient. I have been the one who reviles you and reviles your people. Yet you are slow to anger to me because you love me. Because you set your steadfast love on me. Thank you for that. And it is that steadfast love. That faithfulness. This parallel to verse 5. That brings it all together a god of steadfast love to his people to david david knows i can rest in all these things because of your love to me and so here's where he makes his 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 request here is where he gets specific does he say wipe all the enemies off the map does he say get me out of this situation does he say build up my kingdom give me a new job give me more money what does he pray for spiritual renewal turn to me and be gracious to me He constantly asked for three things. Turn to me and be gracious to me, favor that he doesn't deserve. Give me, give your strength to your servant, so strength in the midst of hardship and save the son of your maidservant. Deliverance from the present situation. Lord, first and foremost, be gracious to me. Give me strength that I may endure this and and pull me out of this. These three requests are are beautiful at the heart of them because they are not selfish. Everything up to this point has been up to the Lord, but he is not afraid to confidently go before his God. But the humility continues. Look at how he describes himself three times. Turn to me and be gracious to me. If you ask for grace, you know that you're needy. You know that you are guilty. So he refers himself as a needy one, refers to himself as a servant. It is not a high and mighty place to be a servant. But he takes it a step further and save the son of your maidservant. You know what's more lowly than a slave? Someone who's born into slavery. Someone who was born to serve the master. He came out of his mother's womb in order to serve. That is how David sees himself. Save the son of your maidservant. Here's one big takeaway for us. There is no salvation without grace. There is no saving without mercy. God owes us nothing. There is no saving us from our sins or from our situations without his grace, without his mercy. And only because God is compassionate and merciful, the God of steadfast love, can we receive grace. It is only out of his good pleasure to those who humble themselves before God like a servant. Even in his petition, he is still humble. Those who fear his name, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. So he closes here with, show me a sign of your favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. It's not, a- it's not wrong to ask for a sign or a work of the Lord, for his credit, that he might be glorified, that he might be the one who is given all of the glory for being the helper and the comforter. It is wrong to ask for your own selfish gain and your own self-fulfillment. And we forget, many times we're tempted in our prayers that, Lord, Lord, show me a sign. Are you really there? Do you really care? Are you really gracious? Are you really merciful? Show me something that I may know. And many times he condescends to your weak requests. But what we forget is we have the greatest sign of God's steadfast love. We have the greatest sign of God's mercy and grace. We have the greatest sign that many people wear around their neck and forget. The cross is the ultimate sign of God's steadfast love. That he would send his son to take on flesh. To covenant with a sinful and broken people. That he would take on their sin and die on a cross. That he would go into the depths himself and be raised again. That they might be raised to new life. Out of his compassion. Out of his steadfast love. Out of his grace. Out of his mercy that we might receive grace and mercy and righteousness is the ultimate sign of how God loves his people. So when you ask God for a sign, it happened 2000 years ago. And we remind ourselves every time we proclaim the gospel, every time we preach Christ, this is God's love. This is God's mercy. This is God's grace. And there is no other way. If you know Christ, You know God's steadfast love. You know no one can ever snatch you out of his hand. You know he has sealed you with his spirit. And he saves a room for you in his father's house. So I don't know if we'd have time. But we are going to have time. Uh, So I think this is expressed really well. And um, William Tyndale was a great Bible translator. And if you read this in the Old English, none of us would understand it. Um, But he was also a great preacher. And uh, his commentary on the Lord's Prayer it's amazing. And I think there's so many parallels here. I just want to read it. So what he does as a great pastor is that he makes it a conversation between the sinner and God. So I want to read this thinking about the Lord's prayer in this, th- this conversation. The sinner, our father who is in heaven. We talked about this. What a great space is between thee and us. How therefore shall we, thy children here on earth, banished and exiled from thee? in this veil of misery and wretchedness, come home to thee into our natural country. God, if the child honors his father and the servant his master, and if I am your father, where is my honor? If I am your Lord, where is my fear? For For my name through you and by your means is blasphemed, railed upon, and evil spoken of. But as the sinner responds, so should we. Alas, O Father, that is true. We acknowledge our sin and trespass, yet be Thou a merciful Father, and deal not with us according to our own deservings, neither judge us by the rigorousness of Thy will, but give us grace that we may live, that Thy holy name may be hallowed and sanctified in us. And keep our hearts that we neither do nor speak no that we not once think or purpose anything but that which is to thy honor and praise. And above all things, make thy name and honor to be sought of us, and not our own name and vainglory. And of thy might, power bring to pass in us that we may love and fear thee as a son and his father. That is beautiful. Steadfast love of God is most evident. And the familial relationship, the father sending the son. So that through Christ, in faith, the poor in spirit will receive grace and gladness and goodness and forgiveness and mercy and favor. And we can go before him in prayer confidently. Because our God is our father. He is our master. He is our shepherd who leads us like little sheep and beckons us to call to, upon his grace. Let's pray. God, you are wonderful. You are awesome and mighty in your deeds. The wicked rail against you. They shake their fists toward heaven. They hate you with all that they are. But you are undeterred. We will not focus on them, Lord. We will focus on you. We will turn to you, the God of steadfast love, the God of grace and mercy, who abounds. In love and compassion, it was slow to anger. Lord, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you that through Him we might receive grace and mercy. We might boldly approach your throne in prayer. And all we sheep that have been that have walked away, in and of our own will, have been brought back by Your will. Let us in prayer give you all the praise and all the glory that you deserve because of what you have done in us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, pray these things in his name. Amen.